Hello, I'm Leanne Townsend, a family law lawyer and partner at Brody Thorning LLP. Welcome to Divorcing Well. Welcome to Divorcing Well. In this week's episode, we're talking about uh, marriage contracts, cohabitation agreements, prenuptial agreements. These are things that um, are coming up more and more these days. And it's an important topic for any married couple to uh, consider uh, before getting married or even once they're married. I'm really excited to have on the podcast today, family law lawyer, Ida Mirzadeh. Um, Welcome to the podcast, Ida. Oh, thank you, Leanne, for having me. And I'm so excited to um, share this interesting topic with our listeners. Well, thank you for coming on. Um, I'm just going to mention a little bit about your background to the listeners. Uh, Ida is an associate lawyer in a family law group at Simmons De Silva LLP. And her practice involves all areas of family law litigation and alternative dispute resolution with a focus on issues such as a high conflict, child custody and support disputes, property division, and negotiating complex separation agreements and marriage contracts. She has over, she's had over five years of experience working exclusively on family law cases and is committed to obtaining positive results in difficult situations. Ida is fluent in Farsi and maintains close ties to the Persian community. Well, welcome again. I'm really excited to have you here. Thank you for having me. Um, now, in your, uh, I, I know we mentioned that you have family law practice. Uh, whereabouts is your practice located? So we're actually located right at the corner of 407 and here, Ontario, which also conveniently happens to be right across from the Brampton Courthouse. Um, although it's been a while since any of us have stepped foot into the courthouse. I'm not complaining, though, because um, I, I don't really want to dust off those robes. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but yeah, it's, it is a pretty convenient location, easily accessible from all different um, highways and just like the 407 being right there is great too. Now, why don't you start off by telling listeners uh, what a prenuptial agreement, like that's the word that kind of gets thrown around, I think a lot in media and movies and stuff, but what a prenuptial agreement, what a cohabitation agreement and what a marriage contract are. Yeah, for sure. And I think this is a great topic. I always love to talk about it um, just for the simple fact that I kind of want to start changing the conversation about a prenup. Um, You know, and I think as family law lawyers, we can all agree that this is something that we often get asked about from friends and family. It's a hot topic at a dinner party, social gatherings. People are always so fascinated by it. And they say things like, oh, I can't believe he made her sign a prenup. I hope she's getting a prenup. And I think it's a there's a lot of just misconceptions about the whole idea of a prenup and what it actually entails. And I think sometimes, you know, these these statements that people say, like, I can't believe he made her sign one, it, it kind of bothers me because I don't think people are actually understanding the many benefits, um, even for the person that's not as financially stable, let's say, or has a lower net worth. And, you know, I'm the first one to admit that I actually drafted my own cohabitation agreement while I was living with my ex, and he had actually more money than me. And uh, oh, wow. but yeah, he bought the house that we were living in. But if I didn't sign a cohabitation agreement and I, and I wasn't so interested in making sure that I had one, I wouldn't have walked away, A, on civil terms with him still, and 
to the money that I contributed towards the mortgage, I would have never got that back because it could have easily be seen as rent or just, you know, there was no documentation that I was contributing to the mortgage other than the contract. So, and I was only there for a short period of time. So I think, you know, people really need to think and consider that there are, there is another side and they kind of need to understand that there's benefits. And if we're, and I know we're going to get into all that. And I, and I just wanted to start the conversation by saying that, you know, we shouldn't be judging or making comments unless they are informed and you've had the benefit of legal advice. And when I say legal advice, I don't mean Google. <laughs> so, <laughs> so getting back to just your question of what it actually is. Um, yeah. So we, we do hear the term prenup, uh, but we, as lawyers in Ontario, usually refer to them as a marriage contract. Um, it's a domestic contract that's written, signed, and witnessed by you and your partner. And you can enter into it either before you get married or even after you get married. And another fun fact, I actually just drafted a marriage contract for a couple who's been married now for almost 10 years, and they're both over the age of 70. <laughs> so Wow. Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's really never too late to enter into a marriage contract as long as you have the proper legal advice and have obviously prepared the agreement appropriately. And I think the, in a, a common law relationship for, for those of you who are, you know, living in a common law relationship with your spouse, you can also enter into a similar contract, which would be referred to as a cohabitation agreement. You know, there's also the option that the cohabitation agreement can automatically turn into a marriage contract if you later marry your common law spouse. So that's a way that you can kind of be even more forward thinking. <laughs> and um, you can get as creative as you want in drafting the contracts. The main issues people often include are property rights and support. And um, one last thing to note is that a cohabitation agreement or a marriage contract can't dictate parenting rights. So you can't say in your marriage contract, okay, so I'm going to get custody of Charlie, let's say, <laughs> you know, you can't, you can't actually contract kids. Now, why would somebody want to get one of these types of agreements? Yeah, so I think, um, what I usually just raise right off the bat with my clients when they are asking about a cohabitation agreement or marriage contract is that times have changed. Unfortunately, the law sometimes has not, especially when it comes to the matrimonial home, which is often a family's largest asset. And, you know, Leanne, me, you and I know that the Family Law Act, um, according to the Family Law Act, this property is getting divided 50-50, regardless of who is on title or who contributed towards the purchase price. And many understandably don't agree with this approach. You know, a, a marriage contract is the perfect way to define the property rights and confirm your intentions. And as I was saying earlier, you can get as creative as you want, as long as the agreement and terms are fair and reasonable, and both parties have the benefit of disclosure and independent legal advice. Um, you know, another uh, pro would be that you are not leaving any room for uncertainty or the unknown. Divorce can be a terrifying, difficult process. So at least by entering into a marriage contract, you're taking some, you're taking back some control. You can dictate how you want things to pan out in the event that there is a separation, um, you know, or a breakdown in the relationship. And some, what, some points that 
I often raise to my clients when they're thinking about this is to really think about what you're each bringing into the marriage. Think about your assets, the debts. Is there a future inheritance that's pending, a family business that's going to get passed down to you? Do you have investments? And the next thing to consider is what are your intentions? What do you want to protect in the event of a separation or divorce? And I think, you know, it's important to make these clear and do it in a written domestic contract. And just having these discussions and being forward thinking about it is beneficial because at least you're turning your mind to potential issues and disputes that could arise and you're better prepared as a result. Um, I think a, a, a con, as we would say, or challenge would probably be that dealing with a domestic contract as a family law lawyer you know, it's that these are the most overturned and challenged legal contracts in our profession. And I think as lawyers, we really need to do our due diligence and have those difficult discussions with clients. Um, We need to kind of manage them into understanding the importance of full and frank disclosure. And I think a lot of times with my clients, the ones who own a large corporation and are seeking to protect the company and its assets, it's, it's sometimes it's really challenging for me to get them to understand the value of retaining a business valuator. And Leanne, I don't know if you've, you've been in similar situations, but sometimes just even breaking the news to them that the business valuation is going to cost $10,000 in addition to what I have asked for my retainer is kind of like a turnoff for them. They're, they're just like, okay, well, no, I don't, I don't want to do it anymore. Why is it going to cost that much? That's crazy. Why do I have to do this? (laughs) And so it's kind of like you need to really be stern in your position of how important disclosure is because it is a main reason why these marriage contracts could potentially get overturned. And I think just explaining to them on the flip side what could happen, you know, if they don't do a marriage contract and they do have a huge corporation and they're married for 20 years and there's a breakdown, they're going to be spending way more than five to $10,000 on a business valuator. They would be spending hundreds of thousands in litigation and maybe even having to dissolve the business, which would be worst case scenario. So I think that's a great way to diffuse the, the, the upfront fees of a marriage contract. Um, and, and I think just the last kind of challenge is just the simple fact that people are still not educated and informed about the many benefits of a marriage contract. And they're just quick to think that they don't need one because they're not bringing anything valuable into the relationship. Now, you touched upon um, some of the challenges surrounding the financial disclosure aspect. And that's certainly something, you know, that I experienced. I experienced that even when people are getting, you know, separated, they don't, (laughs) getting them to complete financial statements and, you know, I don't need to do that. And well, yes, you do. And, you know, it's the same sort of thing. Um, And, you know, you raise such a good point, you know, that can often be the basis for, for unwinding um, the agreement. So the whole, in the whole purpose of having it to protect you, to protect a client, you know, it's, it's why would, why leave that gaping hole, but it is a challenge with a lot of clients, um, you know, to, to get them to make full disclosure, because they, in many cases, they don't want their spouse to know everything that they have. Exactly. Yeah. Now, have you found that COVID-19 has had any effect on the demand for these contracts? Oh, yeah, for sure. And I've definitely seen a spike. 
um, especially in the number of younger people who are opting to protect their interests or future interests. And at minimum, they're just engaging in the that initial step of obtaining legal advice in order to understand, you know, just their rights and obligations of a married or common law spouse. Um, and I think now that many of the weddings have got postponed as a result of COVID-19 restrictions, everything is kind of being put into perspective. Many of the soon to be bride and grooms are wanting to consider and plan for their future, which is ironic, I guess, because now is the time that we're told don't plan. There's nothing certain. We don't know when we can be reunited with family and friends. Um, but at least thinking about your rights and obligations and your interest and in seeking to protect them in the event that there is a separation or divorce is something that you can sit down and plan for today, even, even during a pandemic. Now, you mentioned that um, these types of agreements cannot have clauses with respect to things like custody. Are there other types of things that also cannot be contracted away? Um, so you can't necessarily contract out of your who's going to continue to reside in the home. I have seen that people do put this in. They do try to, um, you know, say, OK, well, I if I say first that I'm leaving, I'm going to give you 60 to 90 days to actually vacate. But, you know, you can't necessarily, especially if they're on title. So if we're, and especially if it's a matrimonial home, you can't necessarily say that I'm kicking or you're going to be evicted from the home. Um, so that's another thing that sometimes comes up um, in the, in the contract for sure. Um, but I think the biggest one that sometimes people surprisingly are, are shocked by is that they can't put in anything with respect to their children. <laughs> yes. Like uh, you mentioned custody. But what about child support? Yeah. Child support as well. I think you can't, you can't necessarily put in there how much you're going to be able to pay towards child support. Spousal support is obviously different. We do um, include, like I said, disclosure. So there is going to be full disclosure with respect to incomes, which is what we use to determine child support, of course. But um, ch ch because everything with respect to the child is, you know, with best interests of the child, it's really hard to negotiate or contract what's going to happen on the date of separation because we don't know what, what the best interest of the child is going to be. How old are they going to be? What, what the child support tables are actually going to dictate but we would we would have information with respect to income which would hopefully guide the conversation at that time when child support would become due yeah and it's kind of similar even in a separation agreement people there's limitations about contracting out of child support especially if you want to get a divorce and it's going to go in front of a judge they sure. need to you know make sure that child support has been properly addressed and so a lot of people don't always i find understand that either oh yeah um, people come to me all the time and say okay so we've decided no child support <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah they don't understand it's the right of the child you yeah, know it's yeah. not your right to negotiate away on behalf of your child it's your child's right exactly and if they want to get a divorce or get a divorce order we can't submit these even the simple divorce application without saying what are the arrangements for the child and what's the child support exactly now, what are some of the common terms that you quite often see people asking for in a marriage contract or a cohabitation agreement? So I, I think, like I was saying, I've, I've been getting a lot of requests, you know, 
over the years, even more recently, younger people, and they are mostly kind of um, looking to protect real property in the sense that, okay, they have, they're bringing some sort of property into the relationship, even if it's a small condo or if it's a previous, even sometimes, a lot of times I see that it's a, it's, it's property from a previous relationship or marriage. um, And they kind of want to protect that or at least protect the initial down payment or deposit that they're putting into a property. Um, uh, The second, I think, biggest thing is that people want to contract out of any potential spousal support that they would owe because one party may make, you know, a larger sum of income. Um, And inheritances are probably the second, the third biggest that I find come up. But, um, you know, I do reassure my clients that the legislation does say that gifts and inheritance are excluded. But at the same time, I think it it does get messy with wills and the estate litigation, and they want to just make it all clean and airtight that any inheritances and any money flowing from the inheritance is excluded and not part of the equalization process. Kind of similar, I find, and I don't know if you experience this, I get a lot of people who um, are living together, common law, who come to me and want to have a a cohabitation agreement, um, you know, basically saying that what's mine is mine, what's yours is yours, and um, all of that. And one of the things, you know, I explain to people when they come to see me in that situation is that generally for common law couples, um, the law already is saying that generally speaking, yes. like obviously there's trust arguments and things that can come up, but generally title rules and what's yours is yours and what's the other person's is theirs. And, um, you know, it, it's already that way. But having said that, I still think it's similar to what you just mentioned with the will, I think there's validity to having a marriage contract that's, or a cohabitation contract, I should say, that's just reiterating and, you know, for extra clarity that that's the case and it can protect somebody from a constructive trust or unjust enrichment argument down the road. Exactly. And I just, I had one actually that there was no inheritance um, made just yet. It was, it was actually, and I always find the inheritance cases are the ones where it's, a younger couple and it's the parents who are really pushing for the marriage contract. And so half the time it's the parents that are really kind of trying to push and retain me and give me instructions. And I keep on saying to them, okay, but you're not my client. So let me, let me just, you know, try to figure something out so that I can help the situation. But the, the company had not actually been, um, it wasn't inherited by the son who was my client. It was, still in the works of possibly in a couple of years, there was not even a timeline of when it was going to be passed on to the son, but there, what they were getting married and the father was very clear that no, 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 it needs to be in a marriage contract. It needs to be protected. They were even, they even had a, a will being done, but it was just something that was so, you know, was so clear of his intentions that he didn't want the spouse to have any potential claim that, but what ended up happening was the lawyer that the um, wife had retained was just not having it. Cause she was saying, well, there's no point where we can't contract into something when there's nothing to contract. And the reason she was saying that was because we couldn't technically value a future interest. Um, 
like I'd actually be interested to hear your perspective, but I think that we could have still done the contract. I think that you can contract for future interest. You may not be able to do the disclosure part of it. You might not be able to disclose the value of the future interest at that time of when it gets inherited. But I think that putting your intentions and making them clear and putting them in writing is definitely valuable. But the lawyer for the other side was just saying, no, I'm not prepared to give legal advice. And we're not. So the the contract didn't end up getting signed, basically. But um, yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I think that it I think there's no harm in doing it. it. You know, it may not be you know, there may be some challenges to it down the road. That's, I guess, the only thing. Yeah. Um, it's maybe not as ironclad as someone might like it to be, but it still helps because um, you said just setting out intentions and making it clear. I, I don't see that there's a downside to that as long as the clients understand that, you know, it may not be ironclad. Exactly, exactly. And I think that's where we were differing in perspectives because I was saying, well, it's his intention and and we should just make it clear. And she was saying, yes, but you can't, you can't disclose it. So we're not putting it in. So it was just a big kind of mess. But I think at the end of the day, what was valuable to my client was that at least those discussions were being had, at least they were being raised. And at least there was correspondence in writing going back and forth about these intentions. So even if it worst case scenario, he can always use that as you know, evidence to show that there was a time that this was a discussion, there was no kind of um, discrepancy, there was, everything was clear, this was supposed to be an inheritance, and it's always supposed to be excluded. Why would, sorry, go ahead. No, no, I'm just saying, at least it's something. It's not an ironclad agreement, but at least it's something. Yes, for sure. Now, why would someone who has very little property and a low income want to get a cohabitation agreement or a marriage contract? So I think just is pretty much like what I was saying in the beginning, in my situation, um, it, it, it does benefit the party that has less coming in because it does, in a sense, level the playing field. It, it gives you a peace of mind. It removes any uncertainty. You know, it saves you from all the arguing grief down the road you get the answers you need now so that you can wipe the slate clean and build a solid foundation with your partner. Because after all, that's, that's what a marriage is. It's a partnership. Um, And I think another way to think about it is you're, you're more likely to get a better deal or settlement when you're negotiating from a place of love and happiness, as opposed to when there's animosity and resentment to the, to the extent that there would be if you were going through a separation or divorce. And I think, this is part of the misconception when it comes to entering into a domestic contract is that people think that automatically they're, they're at a disadvantage because they don't have as many assets or they they don't have a bargaining chip. But I think the, the main focus should be okay, but it's important to have these discussions now because it really shapes and forms the balance of your relationship and how you can move forward. Um, and I think people, people kind of ask me all the time, how do I even raise this to the other side? Or how can I even, you know, bring this up <laughs> to someone that I want to potentially have a life with and get married to? And I think a lot of times it's, it's just about how you bring it up and how you frame it. You, if you have to have that level of respect, mutual respect and trust, I think that 
says a lot about the relationship and how you can move forward with having a marriage contract. Um, and you really need to show that there is a mutual benefit to this. It's, it's essentially an insurance policy and it'll make your relationship stronger. I think from my perspective and the example that I like to give is when you buy a car, you get car insurance, not because your intentions are to damage the car or drive your car into a wall, but because you need security to know your interests are protected in the unfortunate unforeseen case of a car accident, car accident, which is, you know, if, if your relationship ends, it's tragic, but at the end of the day, at least you have that insurance policy. Now, one of the common things that I see come up surrounding these types of agreements is people start bringing in their emotions. And, you know, you hear sometimes people saying things like, well, you know, if my partner wants me to sign, you know, a prenup, that must mean that they don't love me. And so I'm wondering, what do you say to someone who comes to see you and says that they feel that, you know, these agreements show that their partner doesn't love them um, if they're asking them to sign one? Yeah. And I, you know, that's a great point. And I'm, and I'm sure it comes up more often than not. And I think if my client was coming to me with this issue, I would say, well, you know, I hope that your partner, your spouse is going to retain you know, a qualified family law lawyer to help at least facilitate some discussion or the possibility of signing one. Because I think the, 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 the people that make those comments saying that, oh, well, you don't love me. This is why you want me to sign is, is the people that don't actually have the benefit of legal advice. And that's why they're refusing to sign it because they don't understand that it is actually mutually beneficial. Even if currently you may not have assets to protect, there are things that we can put in there that would benefit, you know, the other side. And from, from my perspective as a lawyer, negotiating these types of contracts with another lawyer, it makes all the difference, you know, when, when you're negotiating with a self-represented person who's simply going to take the agreement and get it signed with a lawyer to get independent legal advice from, it kind of always makes me a little bit weary because I feel that, okay, but do you understand actually what's happening? Are you just signing this because you just want to get married and you want to move on and you're not actually caring? You, you know, and I think a lot of times this is, this is what happens. And I obviously can't give the other side legal advice. And I think this is another misconception as well. Sometimes I get clients and they think that because it's a marriage contract and it's not supposed to be litigious, one lawyer can act for both sides. And that's simply not true. You, you need to have the benefit of your own independent lawyer to feel that you're getting the benefit of the um, negotiation process and having a mutually beneficial contract. And, um, and to answer, I guess, your question more directly about what do you actually do when a person is refusing to sign, I think we can't, we can't force them because obviously that borders on duress issues and, um, we wouldn't want them to think we're trying to pressure them. But like I was saying a, a little bit, I was getting into before, I think at the very least, the, the fact that they're having these discussions and it's being written and there's correspondence with a lawyer or two lawyers that there's some sort of, um, there, there was some sort of an idea with respect to what they want to have in, in a marriage contract or a cohabitation agreement is worth 
not having anything at all. So um, my advice would be A, hopefully they are going to have the benefit of a lawyer and B, if they don't and they're refusing to sign, then at least you have, you, you should have, keep text messages, keep emails, any written correspondence to show your intentions of protecting whatever assets you want to protect so that in the event that this comes up later on, you're protected um, and your interests are protected. Now, I know myself in my practice, if I've had the odd time somebody come to me for independent legal advice uh, on signing one of these, and I'm very reluctant to give them advice in that type of situation. It's a I generally try to avoid <laughs> those types of, of clients um, just because I do think they, they can be very, very, it can be very problematic when I haven't been involved in negotiating the, you know, agreement at all. And it's just presented to be signed. Um, now I'm wondering, have you ever had someone come to you and you've advised them not to sign um, a marriage contract or cohabitation agreement? Yeah, that's actually a good question. And I, I have, I think once it was very poorly drafted. I don't, I like, I, again, like I don't like to ever bash other members of the bar, but it was just, I could tell it was something that the other side had just, um, it was something that the parties had probably come up together and they had just asked uh, someone that has access to divorce mate. It seemed like to just check off <laughs> the boxes and put it together. And I had just told them, I said, you know, I can't give you legal advice because I, number one, I don't even like, there's nothing in here that can make me understand. There was no disclosure. There was, I think that was the main reason why I said I couldn't give legal advice because there was no financial disclosure and she was basically willing to walk away from everything and they were going to get married. So the no, no interest in the matrimonial home, no spousal support, nothing. So she was basically going to have zero. And I said, well, this is number one, it's not even going to, it's not binding because it's not even conscionable. So how can you walk away from things if you don't even know what they are? Um, but she was very adamant and was saying, well, no, I need to sign it. You need to, like, I'm going to, I'm going to go to a different lawyer. And at that point I was, and it's, and it's kind of sad because you, you feel like, okay, but I'm trying to help you and you're not listening to me. But at the same time, we can't, w- what more can we do at, at the end of the day? I don't want to put my name on a document um, because our reputations are so important when there's, there's not that, there, there's just not the basic components that are being met. So unfortunately that client walked away and I, and I hope she didn't sign it, but she was very adamant that she was going to sign it. So <laughs> it's funny. I had a very similar experience with someone in the same type of situation where, you know, I had to recommend that they don't sign it. It was just so one-sided and mm-hmm. um, you know, as you just said, un- unconscionable essentially, and she really wanted to sign it and um, you know, she ended up saying she was going to go to another lawyer. Um, it'd be ironic if it was the same person, but oh my God, I, know. <laughs> I don't know what happened with her ultimately. Um, yeah. It was also, you know, on, on the eve of uh, an impending wedding as well. And that was another question I wanted to touch upon with you is what about the timing of some of these things? Because, you know, often you see these people, you know, they've got a, a debt, the wedding is imminently happening and they're feeling pressured sometimes to sign these um if you're wanting to have one drafted what do you recommend about the timing 
Yeah. So I, in terms of the timing, if there's a, you know, a marriage that's supposed to happen in a couple of days, I'd say, you know, you're, you're probably just better off signing it after when tensions have calmed down, you're not stressing running around about wedding preparations, because like, like we were saying before, you can actually enter into a marriage contract after you're married, as long as there's full disclosure and everything's done properly. Um, because at the end of the day, getting, getting a contract signed two days or three days before your wedding, it's very difficult to prove that, or to, to I guess, justify that there's no duress, everyone is on, on board and <laughs> everything's good. But also you could, it could just be that, but there were ne- negotiations for months and there was back and forth. And it is very conscionable in the sense that both parties are getting a mutual benefit. And it just so happened that, you know, that that's the only time that the parties could actually sign it. And I think it's very case specific when it comes to these kinds of things. Each case is different. It depends on the facts, but you know, if there's a situation where parties are calling you a week before their wedding and they're saying, okay, we need to retain a lawyer because we need a marriage contract. And by the way, our, our wedding date is in five days. I'd be saying, no, <laughs> let's just, let's just get everything in order, get at least do some disclosure back and forth, but let's just wait and sign the agreement after. I don't know. Exactly. You know, I, I would say the same thing. Um, well, thank you so much, Ida, for coming on the podcast. You provided a lot of really, really helpful information. How can listeners find you if they'd like to work with you? Oh, for sure. And thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure having this discussion. And I hope our listeners could get some benefit and information from it. Um, I'm always available by email, Ida at sdslawfirm.com. And I'm also very active on social media. You can follow me on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter at Mirzadeh Family Law, where I post about interesting cases and provide helpful tips about family law issues. And to find more information about me and my contact details, you can always go to my firm website, which is www.sdslawfirm.com. Again, that's sdslawfirm.com. Well, again, thank you so much. I really appreciate you sharing all of your tips and advice on this often complicated area. Oh, no problem. Thank you again for having me. And thank you to my listeners. Please tune in each week. Please like, subscribe, recommend the podcast to your friends and family who could uh, benefit from the information and come back each week uh, to Divorcing Well. Thanks for joining us. Hi, my name is Janet Finaki, and I'm the host of the Resilient People podcast. I interview regular people from around the world who've experienced something major in their lives, bounce back, and found a purpose in helping others be resilient too. They're folks like you and me, and their stories are totally relatable, extraordinary, and inspiring. I had no idea what I could do until I did it. But it's the motivation of doing for other people that you know need support, need help, that you're able to really push and dig and find what you can do. Have an open discussion and not write us off and allow us to actually talk about our disability. Like, don't assume my limits for me. You know, we went for a drive, told her what her mom was going through and what the likely outcome is going to happen. And we both just bawled. And then finally, Kate just said that we need to have hope. And to be resilient, you have to, you have, to have hope. Join me as we get to know some incredibly resilient people. The Resilient People Podcast is everywhere you get your podcasts. 
Subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Thank you for joining me on Divorcing Well. If you have any separation or divorce questions, you can get in touch with me via my website at www.leannetownsend.ca.